our guests this morning, and we are thankful that you are here. Good to see you all. Good to be here this morning. Thank you, Chalky, for sharing the tips about the Stephen's ministry. We appreciate your ministry, your ongoing ministry here in the church. And as I've said before, if you need care in this church, it's like a three legs of a tripod. We have the deacon team, which bears the ministers of mercy. We have life groups where you can gather with a small group of people and pray for one another and be part of life with them. And also we have Stephen ministry uh, for those who need someone just to listen to hear. And so uh, there's ample opportunity for you to be cared for here. Also, our 101 tips of evangelism. Uh, you know it's going to take us three years at one tip per Sunday. So if you'd like to read the end of the story, there are some of the books available out of the lobby for a small donation of $10, uh, or you can order them online on Amazon.com or any other bookseller. I'm, I'm not advertising for Amazon. Uh, but anyway, so there's some available out there. If you would like to go a little faster through 101 tips through evangelism, those are available. And if we run out, we can order more if you would like more of those. They're very handy tools to have. Well, this morning, uh, we're coming to back to the book of Acts. Uh, we're laying groundwork for the letter to the church at Ephesus. And it's important before we get to the Ephesian letter that we understand the birth of this church at Ephesus in the first century. And I was thinking about large cities because in about three weeks, less than three weeks, we're sending our team over to Macau and Hong Kong. And they'll be there for the 30th uh, anniversary celebration of the churches being planted there in Macau particularly, but there's also a celebration in Hong Kong. So they're going to Hong Kong, which is a very small landmass, but has 8 million people. And uh, so there's, you don't get away from people when you go to Hong Kong or Macau. Macau has the same landmass as the city of Ephrata, and its population is, what, 800,000 million, somewhere in there. And so if you can imagine the landmass of Ephrata with 20-story apartment buildings everywhere, you get an idea of what Macau was like, and I don't want to scare our team off, um, but it's a great experience, great food, great time, great fellowship, we will meet some wonderful believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, and have a great opportunity to uh, represent us at this 30th anniversary celebration, so thanks to the team, and continue to pray for them as they prepare and get ready to go. But I was thinking about the large cities. We've lived in large cities before, and some of you have. A number of years ago, Professor Harry Cox, Harvey Cox, excuse me, wrote a book called The Secular City. Cox is kind of one of those futurist guys who looks into trends today and then looks into the future and extrapolates from the trends what's maybe going to happen in the future. But he writes these words, that the rise of urban civilization is one of the hallmarks of our era. He goes on to say, urbanization, that's what that's called as cities grow, urbanization constitutes a massive change in the way people live together. And they have moved from tribe to town to technopolis, is the word he uses, because he's trying to get all T words there, but they're moving into bigger cities. More and more of the world's population is becoming urbanized. Uh, John R. W. Stott, a commentator on this, wrote that the urban experience includes a cluster of things like communications and mobility, the disintegration of traditional religion, impersonalization and anonymity, human planning, control, and bureaucracy. Bureaucracy. 
and in the decayed inner cities of our time, we would have to add economic neglect, racial disadvantage, unemployment, poor housing, education, uh, crime, violence, family breakdown, and tensions between police and community, which we have seen in recent history. It's interesting to look at the history of urbanization in this world, in this globe. In 1850, uh, a mere, what, 167 years ago, there were only four what's called world-class cities on the globe. A world-class city is a million people or more. There were only four of them in 1850. By 1980, there were 225 of these world-class cities. And last year, which is the latest count, in 2016, in our current age, there are 512 cities of a million people or more. But what an amazing phenomena is what is called the mega city or the megalopolis, which has more than 10 million people. I guess you know you've arrived at a mega city when you have a population of 10 million or more. We're living now with 31 cities on the globe which have a population of 10 million or more in size. Tokyo. Uh, Japan takes the lead with 38.1 million, followed closely by Delhi, India with 26.5 million, and Shanghai, China with 24.5 million. What's interesting is most of these mega cities are in what we would call the third world or the two-thirds world, and there are only four in Europe and the United States, Los Angeles, New York, of course, and then London, and I don't remember the fourth one in Europe, but there's only four. Most of the megacities are south of the equator or in Asia, uh, which makes some sense. But uh, by 2030, a mere 12 years from now, one half of the world's population will be city dwellers. The ratio will be like 60% of the world's population will live in urban areas. Uh, and the process of urbanization is a significant new fact in our century, and it constitutes a great challenge and a great opportunity for the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, for Christians around the globe, no matter where we live. You know, as we come to the book of Acts, we're going into Acts 19, as we look at the founding of the church at Ephesus. Uh, this was the Apostle Paul's strategy. If you trace out his missionary journeys in the first century, you see that primarily he hit the major cities on the trade routes as he went, because he knew that by doing that, the gospel would spread into the more rural areas or the smaller areas once he established churches in these major areas. It seems like the Apostle Paul, as you read the book of Acts, was purposeful in what he was doing and very strategic in moving from one city to the next city. And uh, what drew him to the cities was probably that they contained Jewish synagogues. Remember, the Jewish people had been dispersed over time, and there were Jewish populations throughout the then known world, and the Apostle Paul, being educated as a Jew, understood the Old Testament preeminently, would go to the Jewish synagogues and start to talk to influential leaders in the community. So in Acts chapters 13 and 14, we see the first missionary journey, the Apostle Paul follows this strategy. In uh, his second missionary journey, in Acts 15 and part of chapter 18, he evangelized Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Macedonia, Athens, Corinth, and so on. And now, as we come to chapter 19, it's actually part of the third missionary journey, where he primarily spends time in the city of Ephesus. Now, there's some things about the towns that the Apostle Paul visited. 
And if you if you have these little headings, they're called pericopes in your Bible, where they're not part of Scripture, they're just a, a summary statement to help you understand what's in that in that uh, uh, chapter or in that paragraph. By the way, I challenge you to use the word pericope in a conversation this week, and that way everybody will think you're nuts, okay? and uh, they'll even join me that way. Uh, so. But the Apostle Paul, these three major cities through these journeys, Athens, Corinth, and Ephesus, and we see that uh, they were sinners. They were like, in their day, uh, the mega center, the most influential cities in the then known world in the Roman Empire. <clears throat> and these cities, uh, Athens, is by conjecture, I guess, or some science and study that they estimate that Athens at that time had less than 10,000 uh, in population. They were kind of in decline from the golden age of Greece. Ephesus had a half a million people. Corinth at its zenith had nearly three quarters of a million. So these were very large cities. And they were the leading cities of the Roman Empire. And they were on trade routes and they were very important to the Roman Empire. Athens, as we know, was an intellectual center. Of course, all of uh, Greek philosophy came through Athens. Athens had a university where all of the intelligentsia of that day would aspire to go to the university at Athens. Corinth was, above all, a commercial center, a trading center. It was on the trade routes east and west, north and south, and they controlled the trade. And of course, God in his wisdom sent Paul there because if the trade would go through the dead known world, the gospel would go through the dead known world uh, from the city of Corinth. And Ephesus, which is our emphasis, was also known for its commerce. It was on a bay, although the bay was silting in, it was building in. and. Uh, Barclay, a famous commentator, called it the marketplace of Asia Minor. And so it was known for its commerce, but it was also and principally known as a religious center in the Roman Empire, in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, the imperial cult uh, flourished there. The city at one time boasted three temples dedicated to emperor worship. Remember, the emperor of Rome was worshipped. He was a god-man, essentially, and he was worshipped in Ephesus. But primarily in the religious center or spiritual center, it was known as the guardian of the temple of Artemis or Diana, uh, the great cult-like fertility goddess. And so that's the three major cities that we are looking at. Uh, we're looking at Ephesus primarily. Uh, all of them differing in degrees as centers of influence and of learning. But as you go through the book of Acts, this is just a brief overview, you'll see a pattern that the Apostle Paul seems to follow, especially in Athens, Corinth, and Ephesus. First of all, he began with a serious and sustained attempt to persuade his Jewish brothers and sisters by going to the synagogue and teaching there and uh, essentially debating with them about who and what this Jesus is about the Messiah. Secondly, Paul was usually rejected by the synagogue, by the Jewish leaders. And when he received this rejection of the gospel, he would leave the synagogue and turn to Gentiles and start using them as a base of uh, spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, in both cities, Paul's bold steps were vindicated by many people who heard and believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there were churches planted in these cities except for Athens, which is an interesting thing. There was not, we don't know about a church at Athens because he was rejected there very firmly. And fourth, uh, in Corinth and Ephesus, Jesus confirmed his word and encouraged his apostle 
And at the Corinth, it was by a vision at night in Ephesus. It was by extraordinary miracles, which we will see here in this passage. And finally, and fifthly, in both of these cities, Roman authorities uh, dismissed the opposition and declared the legitimacy of the Apostle Paul's message. And so today, uh, when we think about our life here, we don't live in a megalopolis, we don't live in a major world city, and so what difference does this make? Well, the difference is, is that I believe that God tells us that there's no such thing as a small place. There's no such thing as just a few people. And so even though we live in a town of seven to 10,000, uh, uh, we still are important in God's eyes. This is an important place to be. And so I want to encourage you with that because the gospel is important to every human being, no matter where we find them. In fact, on the back of your bulletin, every week, I go back to this, is that our purpose statement, in other words, why does Grace Point Church exist? We've declared it very clearly there. Grace Point exists to display the glory of God in Christ Jesus. That is our primary purpose. So how do we do that? And that is the vision. Encounter God, embrace people, engage our culture. And you see the Apostle Paul doing this in the book of Acts. He encounters God. He had a great encounter on the Damascus Road where God saved his soul and changed him from a persecutor of the church to the first major missionary of the church. And he embraced people. He had great love for the people that he would travel to and then he engaged the culture. And we see the church in Ephesus was birthed in the adversity of engaging a culture that was anti-God, anti-Jesus Christ, anti-everything that we would represent. So engaging the culture, then our mission is to grace the point of life in Christ. And uh, that goes on, to, you can read that for yourselves. But this is why we exist. And this is a passage, when we go to the letter to the church at Ephesus, it is how to be the church, basically. The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are about the Christian's wealth. In other words, our possessions, our position in Christ, what we have. And then the last three chapters of the book of Ephesians tells us our walk, or this is the result. This is how we live out this great wealth that we have. And so we need to understand historically, as we come to the book of Acts, how it was planned and how it started. Remember the book of Acts is the history book of the church, if you will. The church started in Acts chapter 2. And uh, it's the history book, and it's a transitional book from an Old Testament economy to the New Testament. Remember that the book of Acts is transitional. There's a lot of change going on historically. We live in a conflicted culture, one writer wrote, but we should not turn tail and run. And we should not bury our head in the sand. Christianity is a confrontational faith. I don't know if you've ever thought of that before. Christianity is a confrontational faith. It challenges human nature. It challenges sin. It challenges what one believes about the future. As a result, our culture despises Christianity. In the face of hatred and scorn, we need to do what the Apostle Paul did. Wisely and winsomely proclaim the truth. Not only in the megacities, but everywhere we find ourselves. In fact, the Great Commission says, make disciples wherever you find yourself. Wherever you go, make disciples. And so Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, uh, the Apostle Paul greets this church at Ephesus later on, about 62 AD, as he's writing from a prison in Rome. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints 
who are at Ephesus. And so there's this church to plan. Remember, saints aren't these plaster statues in cathedrals, but if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are known as a saint. Saint basically is one set apart under the ownership of Jesus Christ. And so everyone who has placed their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ is known as a saint. And now you can tell your children that you are a saint. <laughs> Jesus, whoever it is. So we come to this uh, fact in chapter 19, the portion that Bill read for us. The Apostle Paul, this is the beginning of his third missionary journey, about chapter 18, verse 23. And he returns to Ephesus. Remember, he had a brief stay there before. And they begged him to stay and teach some more, but he had other things he needed to do. But now he has come back to Ephesus, and uh, he has encountered, uh, in the first paragraph of that chapter, encountered disciples of John the Baptizer. Remember, John the Baptizer was the one who was the, who prepared the way for Jesus the Messiah to come. He performed a baptism of repentance, essentially. And these men, he found, there were 12 of them, it tells us in the text, that they had not heard of Jesus Christ in the sense they had not heard that he was the fulfillment all of all the Old Testament longing of Israel. And so he finds them, and uh, they don't believe in Jesus. They're called disciples, but that just simply means they were students or followers. And uh, so they become believers, and uh, so the Apostle Paul immediately has an effect on this community here in Ephesus. And so we see in verses 8 through 10, first of all, in 8 through 10, that there is a great powerful proclamation Great powerful proclamation. Look at the end of verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is basically another way of saying Jesus Christ has come and he has inaugurated the messianic kingdom, God's kingdom that is coming. And he is the fulfillment of all of the longing of historically of Israel who was promised the Messiah. He is the answer to the problems that we face in the world, to eternal life that no one has an answer for other than Jesus Christ. And so there's valiant proclamation. He is bold in his action and his speech. He is enabled to reason and persuade. And he goes to uh, the uh, synagogue there, and he essentially maybe debates a bit with the synagogue leaders. And this was a day-by-day -day event. And he was going in there and it says he did it boldly, uh, reasoning and persuading them. There's a sense in which each one of us as believers in Christ have uh, a hope that resides within us. We know with certainty because of what God's word has said that there is a future and a hope. We are believers in Christ, therefore we have eternal life. And is our present possession. And so there are many around us who do not know Jesus as Savior, and they need to understand that. And so we proclaim to them. We don't need to know all the theology of this book. But we do have a story, and that's what we've talked about, about listening to people and then sharing with them some of the truths that we understand. Now in verse 10, it tells us that this took place for two years, that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Asia is a province. That's the formal name of the Roman province province in southwestern what is now Turkey. And Ephesus was the governmental center. And so the word spread. There was the word of God, the gospel was spread. Uh, 
in Acts 17, when the Apostle Paul went to Athens, you may remember that he looked around and saw all the idols that had been set up, all these worship centers, and it says his spirit was provoked within him. I think there's a sense which Christians do need to be provoked as we look at our culture, as we look at our society. And I think, you know, uh, many people get provoked because the NFL is not standing for the national anthem. I think there are better things to be provoked about. And that is the fact, the idolatry that goes on around us, the people going to hell because they're not believing in Jesus Christ. We need a generation of Christians who have troubled spirits, if you will, provoked spirits, and a willingness to engage a conflicted culture with the proclamation of truth, despite the responses, the range of responses we may see. You've been a believer for a very long and have tried to share your faith with friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, classmates. You know that you can suffer rejection, okay? Remember that the message that's being rejected is the one that you're giving, the one of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, don't take it real personally, but you need to have a provoked spirit as we look at our culture. In verses 11 through 19, we see a range of responses to this initial encounter the Apostle Paul teaching here, the Apostle Paul sharing the gospel. And it's all centered around the world, the flesh, and the devil. The three enemies of who and what we are. The three enemies of all of mankind. There's resistance of the flesh. Look at verse uh, 9. But when some were becoming hardened, this is in the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue, some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way. Early Christians were known as the way. Uh, because maybe because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but through me. And so they became uh, speaking evil of the way before the people. And so therefore, Paul understood the point at which there was rejection by his Jewish brothers there. And so it tells us that he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Now, we, have, we, don't, we don't know anything about Tyrannus. Oh, what a great name for a child, the tyrant. You know, and I don't know if his parents gave that name or his students. But Tyrannus evidently was a teacher, a philosopher who owned a hall, and he would rent it out in the afternoon because in the heat of the day, in that culture, people would go home, have some lunch, take a nap, and then come back later in the afternoon, which I think is a great idea. <laughs> My personal opinion about hell is that it's always one o'clock in the afternoon after a big lunch, listening to a very poor speaker. <laughs> So, but anyway, this Tyrannus rented out his hall to the Apostle Paul. Paul took those who were following and those who were willing to hear the teaching of Jesus Christ. And he went into the hall of Tyrannus and says for two years he lived there and that the word was spreading. And so there was the, the resistance of the flesh, these, these synagogue people who said, no, we, we don't believe in this Jesus as the Messiah. We're still looking for the Messiah. And by the way, continue to pray for Jewish populations around the world because many of them are waiting for the coming Messiah. They have missed the fact that Jesus, not Christ, which is the Messiah, has already come and fulfilled the plan of salvation for the world. We have a missionary, Olivier Melnick, born in France. He's Jewish. He works with Chosen People Ministry, and he uh, spends his spending investing his life in Jewish evangelism. He goes to France, he goes to Israel. Uh, lives over in Seattle, there's a large Jewish population there. So if you think about it, pray for people of Jewish descent, as well as everybody else. And so there's this resistance of the flesh. 
And then we see this strange, these strange things occurring in verse 11. It tells us here that uh, <coughs> God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul. Notice who's doing the miracles. It's God. Does anything strike you as funny in this statement? Extraordinary miracles? <laughs> I mean, any miracle is, is by mere definition, is supernatural. Yet Luke, who God used to write down the history of the church, chose to use this word extraordinary miracles or amazing miracles. This was almost beyond a regular everyday miracle. I don't know how that works. But, but uh, these were extraordinary. And it says that even handkerchiefs and aprons were carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. These handkerchiefs are literally called sweat rags because the Apostle Paul, remember, was a tent maker. He would wear a probably an apron while he was working his tents, uh, and he probably worked in the mornings and then would teach all afternoon, and he would uh, work on his tents, and he would wear a, a, a sweatband, you know, and he would perspire, and, and these things were being carried away, but notice primarily here that God was doing the supernatural amazing miracles, okay? They would take these clothing things and uh, apply them to the sick, and also to those who were possessed by the Spirit. Now, I just have to say here today that uh, one, when you look at Scripture, when you look at miracle working, when you look at those who are working miracles in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, in the Gospels when Jesus did it, and in Acts here where we see this event, that it is always, always to validate the words. Okay? It is always to authenticate the words. Why do I say that? Because this book, this Bible was not complete in 50, what was this, about 52 AD. It was not complete yet. John still had the right revelation and a bunch of stuff. Uh, it was not complete. It was not compiled. And there were a lot of false teachers roaming around the Roman Empire. And they would say something, and would you believe it? Well, how do you believe it? How do you authenticate it? Today, when somebody comes in and says, I have a word from God, what we do is we get our Bibles and say, does it match this? Does it compare with God's revealed word? And if not, we would say, no, sorry, buddy, that's, that's heresy, but that's not true. In the first century, since they didn't have a Bible, people didn't have the scrolls, uh, all of them, to refer to when somebody, a teacher, would come to town, uh, it would validate it. I mean... When there were miracles where people took notice when things happened like this. And by the way, uh, all through scripture, especially the gospels, when there is the miracle of healing, it is always complete. It's not partial. It's not partial. It is always complete. It is never halfway. Remember that as you think about this. And so there are verifiable phenomena. There are miracles. They are performed by God. He uses Paul as his agent, essentially, to validate or authenticate what Paul is teaching. And there is, these were performed. And there are miracles of healing and miracles of releasing people from spiritual bondage. They are two different things. Through the Gospels and here in Acts, we see that there is genuine healing from physical problems. And there is spiritual uh, release from bondage of demonic uh, things. You know, we in the Western world, we're, we're children of the French Revolution, which was all about rationalism. We pride ourselves on being very rational. So when we come to a passage like this, in fact, uh, some of the more liberal scholars have dismissed this part of the book of Acts as simply a myth. 
And yet, if you think of who was God used to write Acts, was Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke would know about diseases and about all that stuff. And uh, he wouldn't include some mythology here with this. Uh, but one thing we need to recognize is that there is spiritual warfare. The Bible teaches us. And we'll find, find more of that in the book of Ephesians. But I was thinking about that. I tend to be a real rational kind of guy. And I was a little skeptical of this weird stuff. But I've had enough missionary friends who talk about things happening in tribes. And when I was over in Indonesia on my second visit there in 1998, I was, uh, primarily went over to uh, do a spiritual life seminar for the missionaries uh, in West Kalimantan, which is on the big island of Borneo, it's a province, in the city of Pompeonic, which is the largest city there, probably two million people on the equator. And of course, Indonesia is <clears throat> the largest Muslim nation in the world, population-wise. And so, uh, just down the street from where we were meeting was a large Muslim temple. It was during Ramadan. And so every night, there were thousands and thousands of people there singing, and uh, there was noise, and all this, this, this kind of this cacophony of sound that would come over where we were, these little band of missionaries meeting in this little room. And I was supposed to speak, and the first night there, and the, it was raining, and the thunder was going, and uh, I lost my voice. I mean, it just went away. Of course, that's happened here, too. But uh, uh, it just went away, and I could not regain it. I just felt this oppressive spirit as I was listening to Muslims singing and worshiping Allah over at the large temple. And uh, there are really some things that are beyond our rational thinking. And yet here we see that uh, there is resistance, there's miracles and, and releasing from bondage. And then there's not only the resistance from the flesh, but the demonic resistance. Look at verses, <clears throat> excuse me, Let's see here. In verse 13, but some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. This was very common in uh, the empire, the Roman Empire at this time, that there would be people. Uh, we, in fact, I think they're still with us. Uh, people that travel around making money off of uh, people who are a little bit gullible. And it says, seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. Uh, he was probably, Sceva's not listed in the high priest list, but he was probably part of the family of a Jewish high priest, chief priest. In verse 15, an evil spirit answered and said to them, I think, to me, this is the funniest part in all of the Bible. I really do. This just, this cracks me up some reason. Maybe out of a warped sense of humor. But the evil spirit answered these seven sons of Steve and said to them, I recognize Jesus. I know about Paul. But who are you? I just didn't hear this. You know, the, the words here is, he knows Jesus by experience, which the demons would. Because remember, demons are fallen angels who left their first estate and went to Lucifer rebellion against the most high holy God. And so he would know Jesus by experience. And he's heard about Paul. Paul has a reputation, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was in leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. He beat the tar out of these guys. 
I really wonder if they ever tried that trick again because they really came within an inch of their lives. And it tells us in verse 17, this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived at Ephesus, and fear fell upon them, and all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified, it was being lifted up. This is something special that's going on. This just isn't another huckster come to town telling us about some deity, but Jesus, Paul's words about Jesus have power and have strength, and therefore there is demonic resistance here. But it is used, God uses it for Jesus Christ's magnification. And then there's the resistance of the world, essentially. The world draws all of us into wrong practices and places value on the wrong things in verses 18 and 19. Many of also those who believed kept coming, confessing, disclosing their practices, and many of those who practiced magic brought their books together, began burning them in the sight of everyone, and they counted up the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Ephesus was the center of the occult, with the worship of the emperor, with the worship of Diana or Artemis, with the worship, and it was known for books full of magic and magic incantations, and uh, it tells us that these new believers, these babes in Christ, were convicted of their previous practices, and they burned that stuff. They got rid of it. In fact, in Indonesia, in the tribe we were in, the Samangan tribe, uh, of course, they had been headhunters and witch doctors not too many generations ago, and they still have witch doctors. And uh, many of the new believers that I talked to and heard their testimony had given up the practices of what the witch doctor had prescribed. There was a very definite uh, demarcation between life as we knew it before and the new life in Christ. And for all of us as believers in Jesus Christ, you should be able to look back and see a magnificent demarcation. Maybe it didn't happen overnight with these, like with these folks, but it happened. And your life will be changed because you are now belong to Jesus Christ. You are no longer your own. You're not in this darkness of sin. Resistance of the world is there. And so we need a generation of Christians who have a troubled spirit and a willingness to engage our culture with the proclamation of the truth, despite the range of responses we will experience and see. And that brings us to the final question, so what? So what? But look at verse 20. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing, even in the face of adversity, of difficulty, of outright opposition, the word of the Lord was growing mightily. There was vigilant progress or growth in might and power. We don't need miracles of sweat rags and aprons because each one of you who has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ is a walking, talking miracle. The greatest miracle, supernatural thing of all is God opening our eyes to the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. Only he can do it. We don't manufacture that. We simply are the messengers, the distributors of the message. And God opens their eyes. So what do we do? Well, the warning is to guard our hearts because there is no middle ground. We see in the synagogue there was hardening and disobedience. There were people who rejected the, 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 the truth of the gospel. And that word that's used there is a medical term. And you know, we all know that hardening of the arteries is a medical issue that can result in death. Disobedience. You know, it's unbelief. There's a practical atheism. And I think all Christians are prone to this because things don't work out quite like we thought they should. And so is God really as big a God as I think he is? 
did he really do this? Did he deliver me from my current problems or pain? And uh, the tendency is Satan is whispering in our ear, hey, he's really not that big. Kind of like what he did to me. Did God really say? There's a practical atheism that is a danger for all of us. So guard your heart. Thirdly, respond to God's word with confession. They kept on confessing and disclosing. Isn't that just pure when we see these new Christians? They bring their books of magic, by the way, a drachma, 50,000 pieces of silver. One drachma was a day's wages, so that's 50,000 days' wages. And, uh, you know, they didn't try to sell them on the marketplace. They were valuable scrolls, valuable books. And yet they destroyed them because they knew they had to cut from the past tremendously. They sacrificed that which is costly by worldly standards. And they had a witness and testimony before the world. The word of drop God. Is it growing mightily and prevailing in and through you? That's, only a, that's a question only you can answer. Because the word of God is mighty. I just read, I, I'm trying to read, I have a, a, a book of many biographies of people in church history and this last week I read about David Martin Lloyd-Jones he was a British guy and a, a preacher in the 1940s and 50s uh, in fact I think his first Sunday uh, in the pulpit in London was the day that England entered World War II in 1939 uh, but he writes uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes much of the trouble in the church today is due to the fact that we are so subjective so interested in ourselves and so egocentric. Having forgotten God and having become so interested in ourselves, we become miserable and wretched and spend our time in the shallows and in the miseries. The message of the Bible from beginning to end is designed to bring us back to God, humble us before Him, enable us to see our true relationship to Him, and Martin Lloyd-Jones adds, and that is the great theme of the book of what we need is a generation of Christians who have troubled spirits and a willingness to engage a conflicted culture with the proclamation of truth despite the range of responses we will see. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word and for blessing us with your word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul and for others in the city of Ephesus here in this very tumultuous time that we read about and will read about. And thank you, Lord, for the fact that you gave Paul courage and boldness to claim the truth. Lord, that you rescued so many people. And Lord, thank you for blessing us with the account of that in your word, in our own language. And we thank you for this day. In Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen. Well, this morning we come to the Lord.